Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 522, Zionists and Palestine. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Frustrated with the progress of the war, Britain chooses Lloyd George as its new prime minister in December 1916. Lloyd George is an imperialist and Christian Zionist and wants to create a semi-autonomous Jewish state in Palestine. In the spring of 1917, Tsar Nicholas II abdicates his throne and Russia descends into civil war. Later that year, George Clemenceau becomes the new Prime Minister of France. With Russia out of the war, Britain and France hope to convince millions of Russian Jews to support the Allied cause. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Balfour Declaration. Christian Zionism Religion is often overlooked as a factor of World War I. Each of the major participants had different religious environments and each government viewed religion differently. The Ottoman Empire was an Islamic monarchy with a predominantly Muslim population and a large Christian minority. The German Empire was a parliamentary government with a predominantly Christian population with nearly equal numbers of Protestant and Catholic. The Austria-Hungary kingdom was a Christian monarchy with a predominantly Catholic population. On the other side was the Russian Empire, an Orthodox Christian government where the church still played a large role in society. Britain was a constitutional monarchy with a majority Protestant population and a large Catholic minority. And France was a secular republic with a predominantly Catholic population. When David Lloyd George became Prime Minister in 1916, he brought his Christian faith with him to Downing Street. And it was his Christian upbringing that led him to support the Zionist cause. The meaning of Zionism has changed since the early 20th century. Today, a Zionist is someone who supports the modern state of Israel. However, traditionally, Zionism was a nationalist movement to create a home for the Jewish people and not necessarily in Palestine. As we'll see, Lloyd George was not the only devout Christian in the British government who believed in the Zionist cause. Likewise, many evangelical American Christians today believe supporting the modern state of Israel is a religious duty. It may seem peculiar that the most devout members of one religious group would support the nationalist cause of another religious group. But if we look closer, we can see that it isn't that surprising at all. First, we cannot deny the familiarity between Western Christians and European Jews. The Jewish people have been a part of Christian European society for nearly 2,000 years. When the Europeans conquered and colonized the Americas, many Jews came over with them as well. 
An example of this familiarity is the inaccurate statement that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. This is because many people see Israel as an extension of Western culture. Compare this with the Muslim world and its various exotic cultures incorporating peoples and languages from West Africa to Southeast Asia and everything in between. It is no surprise that many Western Christians see the Jewish people as familiar and Muslims as foreign and alien. And then there is the guilt. The Jewish people have suffered discrimination and persecution throughout much of their history and most of it at the hands of European Christians. After the Enlightenment, as Europe became more secular, Jews still faced overt discrimination in Eastern Europe and covert discrimination in Western Europe. Even today, Jewish community and religious centers are still targeted by anti-Semitic attacks. Many Christian Zionists express a desire to protect Israel and prevent a repeat of this historical oppression. Unfortunately, this often comes at the expense of Muslims. This desire to protect Israel is ironic considering it is one of the most powerful nations in the Middle East and the only one with nuclear weapons. And Israel has proven itself more than capable of defending its borders. This protective attitude towards Israel stems from the various wars it fought against its Arab neighbors. Israel was always seen as the underdog since it was one nation fighting against a coalition of Arab states. Even though there hasn't been a war between Israel and any Arab state in nearly half a century, this perception continues. Anti-Muslim bias also plays a role for many Christian Zionists. Despite the oppression of European Jews, Judaism has never really been considered a threat to Christianity. The same cannot be said for Islam. Ever since the Battle of Mu'tah during the time of Prophet Muhammad, the worlds of Islam and Christianity have been in conflict. The Arab conquest of the Levant and Egypt the Umayyad conquest of Spain, the Crusader conquest of Jerusalem, the Turkish conquest of Anatolia, the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans, the Spanish Reconquista of Iberia, the European colonization of North Africa and India, the conflict between Russia and the Ottomans, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, and today, the so-called War on Terrorism. Not only have Muslims and Christians fought each other militarily, they have also fought ideologically. Unlike Judaism, Islam and Christianity both actively seek converts. In their quest to gain new adherents, proponents of both faiths often exaggerate or even fabricate details about the other. This continues today. A vibrant industry of anti-Islam critics exists in the West, though they are not always Christian. Some are Jewish, some are Hindu, some are Buddhist, some are atheist. They are made up of academics, priests, rabbis, politicians, activists, and laymen. Some are black, some are white, some are Indian, some are even Arab.
The only thing they have in common is their shared dislike of Islam and Muslims. These pundits justify their criticisms of Islam by pointing out the political instability, financial chaos, and strange cultural practices in parts of the Muslim world. For these critics, Islam is the common denominator and must be opposed at all costs. Christian Zionists also interpret certain biblical verses as divine commandments to support Israel. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12 reads, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Christian Zionists like Lloyd George also believe that the lands of Palestine are both the ancestral and divinely ordained home of the Jewish people. The Bible states in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Another reason for some Christian Zionists is the eschatological belief in the return of Jesus Christ. There is a segment of evangelical Christians who believe Jesus Christ will return when Solomon's temple is rebuilt where Masjid al-Aqsa now stands. They believe this event, as foretold in biblical prophecy, will trigger the rapture and a war of Armageddon. Jews in the Ottoman Empire It is incorrect to believe that Jews only arrived in Palestine in the early 20th century. Jewish people have existed in the Ottoman Empire ever since there was an Ottoman Empire. As the Ottoman dominion spread across Anatolia, the Balkans, and the Middle East, it absorbed the Jews living in those areas. Ottoman Jews did not face any greater level of oppression than other religious minorities in the empire. Ottoman Jews, like Ottoman Christians, faced some restrictions on their civil liberties depending on the ruling administration. Some Ottoman sultans imposed stricter limitations on religious minorities and others did not. Like all other religious minorities in the empire, Ottoman Jews were treated as an autonomous group. Under the Millah system, the Ottoman Jewish community enjoyed significant independence. All religious minorities in the Ottoman Empire had to deal with some discrimination. The Ottoman Empire was not a secular government and Islam was the official state religion. However, it is undeniable that Ottoman Jews had more freedom and liberty and faced far less persecution than their European counterparts. Compare this to Spain, which was also a monarchy but whose state religion was Catholicism. Spanish Jews and Muslims were either forced to convert or were expelled from the kingdom. 
1492, Ottoman Sultan Bayezid II sent ships to resettle many of these Jews and Muslims in his empire. Ever since the diaspora began nearly 2,000 years ago, European Jews had dreamed of one day returning to Palestine. By the late 1800s, the Zionist movement had caught steam and thousands of European Jews began migrating to Palestine. The Ottoman government's attempts to limit Jewish migration to Palestine were generally unsuccessful. Cash-strapped Palestinian landlords were often eager to sell their lands to Jewish migrants. Some Ottoman officials preferred non-Muslim inhabitants in Palestine and ignored migration restrictions. And Zionist organizations looked for legal loopholes. Decades before becoming prime minister, Lloyd George served as legal representative for the Zionist Federation. In 1903, he lobbied British officials in Cairo to allow Jewish settlement in either Sinai or Cyprus. The British Parliament rejected both options and offered parts of Uganda instead. The Zionist Federation appreciated the gesture, but never really considered it as their sights were set on Palestine. Jewish migration to Palestine continued up until the outbreak of World War I. These Jewish migrants brought European technology with them and transformed their Palestinian settlements into modern cities. Meanwhile, their Palestinian neighbors continued to live the same agrarian lifestyles they had for centuries. Inevitably, there was some friction between the indigenous Palestinians and the newly arrived Jewish migrants. But for the most part, proponents of Zionism were optimistic the two communities could live together in harmony. However, most Palestinians were uneasy about the rapidly growing high-tech Jewish settlements. Once the war started, Jewish people living in Palestine were in a precarious position. Many of them were from Britain or Russia, and they did not want to invite any Ottoman scrutiny. However, there were some Jews who took active roles in the conflict. One such example was David Ben-Gurion, who would later become the first Prime Minister of Israel. David Ben-Gurion was a Polish-Jewish activist who migrated to Palestine in 1906. When the war began in 1914, he organized a Jewish regiment to fight for the Ottomans. However, the young Turks grew suspicious and deported him to Egypt. From there, Ben-Gurion made his way to the United States where he continued to call on Jews to help the Ottoman Empire. But at some point, he decided it was a lost cause and he joined the British Jewish Legion instead. The Jewish Legion was a British regiment created to fight the Ottomans within Palestine. The idea came from another Christian Zionist, the British Assistant Secretary of War, Leo Amory. There were also Jewish spies operating within the empire both for and against the Ottomans. We've already mentioned Alexander Parvis, the Jewish spy who helped get Russia out of the war. On the other side, there was Aaron Aronson, a Romanian Jewish botanist. Before the war, 
Aronson had made groundbreaking discoveries that helped expand global wheat production. His work likely saved millions of people from famine. In the spring of 1915, Palestine and the Levant were struck with a devastating locust infestation. Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman minister of the navy, invited Aaron Aronson to Palestine to help deal with the locusts. Once established in Palestine, Aronson proceeded to spy on the Ottomans for the British. His spy network was called NILI, a Hebrew acronym meaning the Eternal One of Israel will not lie. Nili included Aronson, his sisters Sarah and Rivka, his brother Alex, and several others. Under the guise of exterminating the locusts, they passed information to the British about Ottoman troop movements. The Ottomans finally discovered Nili in October 1917 after nearly two years in operation. They broke up the spy ring, arresting and executing several of its members. However, by this time, Aronson had long since returned to England. Palestine Strategic Importance With Lloyd George at the helm, the focus of the war shifted beyond Europe to include Africa and the Middle East. After all, the lands of Europe were ravaged by years of war, its people were tired, and its economies broken. No matter who won the war, there were to be no spoils in Europe. All of the spoils would come from the lands of the Muslims. Britain wanted to defeat Germany, but Britain did not want to destroy Germany. Great Britain needed and wanted a strong Germany to act as a buffer between Russia and France. But they had no such qualms about dismantling the Ottoman Empire, which would give them unfettered access to the Suez Canal and all the mineral resources of Arabia. For centuries, everyone thought Arabia was a vast wasteland of deserts and date palms. But recent geological studies indicated that untold amounts of crude oil lay beneath its sands. And if nothing else, the war had taught all parties the importance of oil in modern warfare. Lloyd George wanted Palestine for both religious and strategic purposes. As a Christian Zionist, he wanted to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But, as an imperialist, Lloyd George wanted a completely connected global British empire. In the West, Britain controlled Egypt and most of the East African coast down to South Africa. In the East, they had Malaysia, Hong Kong, and India. And even further East, they had Australia and New Zealand. Palestine was the missing piece Great Britain needed to connect the eastern half of its empire with the western half. In order to do this, Lloyd George needed both Jewish and Arab allies. He saw no conflict in supporting Jewish and Arab nationalists at the same time. Like most Zionists back then, he was confident there was a way to make things work out for both groups. 
Of course, the British had no intention of creating truly independent Jewish or Arab states. Lloyd George envisioned semi-autonomous British possessions governed by local bureaucrats. The Balfour Declaration As we have seen, Lloyd George had ample religious and strategic reasons to support the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But he also had political considerations. The Zionist cause had become very popular in certain British circles. Mark Sykes of the Sykes-Picot Agreement supported Zionism because he was afraid of Jewish support going to the Germans or the Turks. Gerald Fitzmaurice was an influential government employee and childhood friend of Mark Sykes. Before the war, he had worked in Istanbul as an interpreter for the British government. Fitzmaurice also supported the Zionist movement, but only because he believed the Young Turks were secretly a cabal of Freemasonic Jews. Lord Robert Cecil was the British Undersecretary of State for Foreign Affairs. After losing five sons in the war, he became a born-again Christian and committed to the Zionist cause. Sir Ronald Graham was another British diplomat who supported Zionism. He used his considerable influence to convince the British Foreign Office to commit to Zionism as well. The Zionist movement now had the support of both the British Prime Minister and the British Foreign Office. However, the Zionist Federation wanted to make it official. They wanted a public statement of support from the British government. Lloyd George and Mark Sykes encouraged Chaim Weitzman, president of the British Zionist Federation, to meet with other British officials. Some of these officials expressed concerns that Zionism was looking too British. So Mark Sykes and Chaim Weissman decided to meet with the French and the Americans to get their support as well. Initially, the French had no strong feelings either for or against Zionism. French Jews weren't really making a big deal about migrating to Palestine. Besides, France believed it still had a claim in Palestine. However, their view began to change in 1917. First, there was the revolution that took Russia out of the war. Russia had a large Jewish population and France wanted their support. Second, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau was against French imperialism. He relaxed French claims to Palestine and let the British take the lead. Under Clemenceau, France expressed their verbal support of the Zionist cause, but did not officially commit to it. The American government was eager to support Zionism. President Woodrow Wilson was a devout Christian who also believed Palestine was the God-given home of the Jewish people. However, he did not support British imperialism. The Americans were well aware of Lloyd George's dreams of a globally connected empire. But then rumors surfaced that the Germans were considering issuing a statement in support of Zionism and President Wilson quickly fell in line. These rumors were exaggerations. 
German support of Zionism would have caused tension with the Ottoman allies and it was never seriously considered. With the support of France and the United States, the British government was ready. On October 31, 1917, the British cabinet ordered Lord Arthur Balfour, British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, to publicly declare Britain's support for Zionism. Arthur Balfour released a carefully worded letter of support to Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild, a leading figure in the British Jewish community. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have the pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. The Arab Response Sharif Hussein, the former Ottoman governor of Mecca who started the Arab Revolt, vehemently opposed the Balfour Declaration. Ever since he first began negotiating with the British two years earlier, he had made it clear he expected to rule over Syria and Palestine. If there was anything he opposed more than British or French rule over Palestine, it was Jewish rule over Palestine. But it was too late now. Sharif Hussein had fallen for Britain's vague promises and had rebelled against the Ottomans. In doing so, he had taken Muslim lives in the holiest of cities. He could protest all he wanted, but there was nothing he could do to change the way things were. Sharif Hussein's son, Faisal Hussein, was leading the forces of the Arab revolt with T.E. Lawrence and fully invested in a British victory. Years later, Faisal Hussein would meet with Chaim Weizmann of the Zionist Federation and sign an agreement in support of Zionism. Most Christian Arabs supported the Balfour Declaration. They were at the forefront of Arab nationalism and desperately wanted independence from the Ottomans. Most Muslim Palestinians were opposed to the Declaration, but their opinions did not matter to the British. Muslim Palestinians were Ottoman subjects and Britain still considered them the enemy. In the next episode, we'll return to the Middle East and see how the Arab revolt and the war in Sinai is coming along. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. 
To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. We are discussing the caliphate or the rebellion of Ibn Zubair. All depends on your perspective. And in this particular episode, we are going to continue our discussion of the rebellion within the rebellion that is the rebellion of Mukhtar ibn al-Ubaid. And so you understand where we are, we will briefly recap what happened in the previous episode. We discussed how Mukhtar's Shiite following in Kufa was growing very large. We discussed how the remaining penitents had joined his side. We also mentioned how Kufa was ripe for rebellion because there were lots of problems in Kufa, many sectarian problems between the uh, Shiites, those who were partisans of Ali, also those who supported the Umayyads, those who supported Ibn Zubair. Then we had the Kharijites who didn't support anybody. And above all of that, or maybe below all of that, there was the frustration of the Mawali, who were kind of like the peasant class of the society and how they were treated as second-class citizens, even though they were Muslims and they expected full rights. And so we're going to get into all that, inshallah. So for right now, let's continue the discussion. So we are talking about Ibn Mu'ti and what he did when he arrived as Ibn Zubair's new governor of Kufa. So now we have, so Kufa has all these tensions going on, the Shiites, the Umayyads, the Karajites, and the uh, Ma, the Mawali. You have all these different things going on in Kufa. And so Ibn Mu'ti, Ibn Zubair's new governor of Kufa, his hands are pretty full. So he goes to the main masjid in Kufa, and he gives a sermon in which he outlined his plans for Kufa. While he is giving his sermon, he promises to deal justly with the people, and he promises not to unjustly take their land or their wealth, but he also promises to 
abide by the rulings of Omar ibn Khattab, and he also promises to act in accordance with the conduct of Uthman ibn Affan. And then he finishes finishes it off by warning the people of Kufa not to rebel against his authority. When his sermon was finished, some of the Shiites scoffed at what he was saying, and one man stood up and began to throw back everything that Ibn Mu'ti had said, throwing it right back at him. They said, we do not recognize any authority except the authority given by Ali ibn Abi Talib. And they said, you are right. You are not going to take our, our land and our wealth unjustly. And this is essentially saying that um, a lot of this stuff boils down to money. There's emotion too. But in reading this, I can kind of sense that nobody, the people of Kufa, I should say, they weren't willing to pay taxes to any authority that was not from Ali's lineage. And they did not see Ibn Zubair as a valid authority that they could pay their taxes to. And then he also threw his promise, Ibn Mati's promise to behave in accordance with Uthman ibn Affan because remember many of the people who joined Ali they were um, against Uthman many of Ali's earliest uh, supporters and we're going to see that in a few minutes many of his earlier supporters were people who just did not like Uthman and wanted him out of office in fact some of them were even responsible for uh, Uthman's ultimate uh, murder